Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Today's podcast is with Lauren Finnerty, a nurse practitioner at Victory Men's Health, and Lauren has extensive knowledge when it comes to hormone optimization and has done continuing education with organizations such as the International Peptide Society, A4M, and AMMG. And today we're going to be doing part two of the frequently asked questions about testosterone therapy. So welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you for having me, Amy. Okay, so question number one of part two of the frequently asked questions of testosterone is, why is my testosterone low in the first place? So Amy, there are numerous potential causes of low testosterone. A lot of people aren't familiar with the terms primary and secondary hypogonadism, but I think that it's important to explain a little bit about each of these. Primary hypogonadism is far less common. That is an issue where the testicles are failing to respond to the message from the pituitary gland in the brain to make more testosterone. It can be caused by undescended testicles at birth, injury to the testicles, even chemotherapy or radiation, iron overload disorders, and other genetic conditions such as Klinefelter syndrome. The more common type is secondary hypogonadism. That is where the testicles are normal, but function improperly due to a problem in the pituitary or hypothalamus of the brain. This also has numerous potential causes. That can include things like obesity, inflammatory diseases, stress, drug and or alcohol consumption. A lot of medications can contribute. Some of these could include opioids and anabolic steroids. And while low testosterone is often associated with increased age, according to results presented in the 2020 American Urological Association Virtual Experience, from 1999 to 2016, testosterone levels have declined in adolescent and young adult men, even in those with normal body mass index. Recently, there's also been more focus on endocrine-disrupting chemicals, which I believe you talked about on an earlier episode. Those can interfere with hormone production as well. We are constantly exposed to these. Those come from our contaminated food and water sources, plastics, skin contact, inhalation of contaminated air and dust, just to name a few. Yeah, I did talk about that on a podcast with one of our other providers, Anna, and I really do think that's why we're seeing such a large number of patients that have low testosterone, because we're exposed to these endocrine disruptors on a daily basis. And Dr. Shana Swan did a great podcast with Joe Rogan on it. If people haven't listened to it yet, I would highly recommend listening to it. And Because we're exposed to these endocrine disruptors, LabCorp in 2017 actually lowered its reference range to fit the, quote, new normal. So the testosterone range is consistently getting lower among men, and therefore the lab reference range is consistently getting lower. And then also, I feel like another thing that we see not very often at Victory is pituitary tumors from time to time that could cause it, but that's a rare. Yeah, good point. We do sometimes see that. And we do monitor something called prolactin level to maybe help uh, be an early identifier for something like a pituitary tumor. And back to the endocrine disruptors, 
babies can be exposed to this in vitro. So I think people are trying to eat clean and they're trying not to microwave their food in plastic and they still have low testosterone, but needing to understand that you could have been exposed to these endocrine disruptors in vitro. Yeah, it's pretty much something we cannot avoid in our current environment. We can try to do better, but ultimately we're going to be exposed to these things. So do you think that's what we see majority of obesity and endocrine disruptors, environmental factors causing this low testosterone epidemic? Yeah, I think that's what we suspect a lot of the times. A lot of our younger patients are surprised to find that their testosterone levels are low. And I often have to tell them that it is no surprise to me many of their levels are lower than the older patients we see. And a lot of these guys are healthy. And so there's a question to the fact of where this is coming from and environment is likely a huge factor. And we do have father-son patients that come in. And to your point, so often and majority of the time, the son has a lower testosterone level than their dad. Very true. Yep. And that's because the dads weren't exposed to these factors as much or as frequently as their child is now exposed to that, which is wild to think. And it really blows their mind when they're in together. The dad gets a moment to brag, I feel like. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Next question. Will starting with just the supplements and lifestyle change raise my levels? So I always tell my patients that any treatment should be an adjunct to a healthy lifestyle, definitely not a replacement for one. Many patients do not find a significant improvement even when they make these lifestyle changes to their testosterone levels and or the symptoms of low testosterone. Sometimes they put in the effort and their symptoms do not get better, even if their levels might modestly improve. Additionally, lifestyle modifications are often difficult to even implement or sustain just due to the simple fact that these guys are suffering from symptoms in the first place. So I try not to be blind to that fact and explain that to the patient. I don't expect a miracle, but sometimes there's some homework as far as lifestyle too. Certain supplements can be beneficial as part of treatment to either help target specific symptoms that somebody may have or deficiencies that we may find on the labs and even just for overall health. And some even can support hormone production, but supplements alone are also unlikely to make a dramatic impact on the testosterone levels themselves. And we obviously support a healthy lifestyle and making those changes, but it just might not get you to where you're ultimately wanting to be. And I think a supplement that we see support testosterone is maybe DHEA. Would you agree with that? Correct. But in men, it's really not going to raise their testosterone levels all that much. There are a lot of symptoms that overlap, and DHEA is a precursor hormone to testosterone. There are a number of them. A lot of places only look at the testosterone, but they're not getting the big picture, and treating testosterone will not backfill hormones that come before that in our sex hormone cascade. So optimizing other hormones is also important, and you know, definitely we want to look at deficiencies, but we also want to consider the symptoms. And if we can do better than just testosterone, adding these other things as we go along is a great adjunct to the treatment. Okay, so next question is on the topic of estrogen. And I think over the last couple of years, this has been a hot topic. And the question is, my testosterone is high, but so is my estrogen. What should I do? And, you know, I want to use this quote, high estrogen kind of loosely. I think whenever I say high or the patient is referencing high, 
They're meaning outside of a lab core reference range. And just like with the testosterone, to your point, Amy, those levels are likely based on a man that has lower testosterone levels. Estrogen is a byproduct of testosterone in the hormone cascade. And so if your testosterone levels are lower, your estrogen will be too, except maybe in the case of, you know, obesity, you know, a lot of abdominal adiposity, visceral fat around the organs. And then if you increase testosterone, we should naturally expect that the estrogen should follow that. And people like to get their, you know, minds wrapped up in that my labs are outside of my reference range, or they hear from their buddies at the gym that estrogen should be low, but that's a huge myth of testosterone therapy. Research actually supports that estradiol may be just as important as testosterone in men and accounts for many of the benefits of testosterone therapy. So the simple answer is we really should not be worried about the estrogen levels increasing in men, and we, in fact, should expect it. Yeah, so let's talk about some of the health benefits that estrogen has. And we do still see physicians blocking estrogen and maybe even going as far as putting an anastrozole pellet in somebody, which is, it's concerning. And it's difficult to manage because you can't just tell the patient to get off of it. And I believe it was at Neil Rousier at the A4M or AMMG conference went to far as say, if he sees a patient with an estrogen blocking pellet, an anastrozole pellet, he would supplement them with estrogen. Yeah, I actually talked to Dr. Neil Rousier separately at the conference. They hit on estrogen really hard and all of the benefits of estrogen and why we should not be blocking estrogen in any man. And so these clinics that are blocking it are not following evidence-based medicine. It's as simple as that. So yeah, he's actually suggested that in a lot of his patients, he's actually adding estrogen to their treatment. That is something that maybe not a lot of places are doing, but they find in research that estrogen is so important to men, just like it is to women. And in fact, it improves their health problems such as metabolic syndromes, like the diabetics can often improve their body composition. So when you're dealing with somebody that has an implanted aromatase inhibitor estrogen blocker, that might be a good option to treat them is by adding an estrogen in because you're not going to be able to see it follow until that estrogen metabolizes out in that case. And sometimes gynecomastia, maybe on the street known as man boobs, they want to tie that in with estrogen. So what would you say to that? Do I need to take an estrogen blocker if I feel like I have man boobs. You probably know that this is one of my favorite topics to talk about with my patients. So this is another very common misconception. The answer is no, you should not be taking an aromatase inhibitor or estrogen blocker, AI, whatever you want to call it. It's important to note that a lack of evidence, first of all, supports the use of aromatase inhibitors when you're on testosterone therapy. So this likely comes from the bodybuilding industry. However, many of the, quote, side effects that are blamed on estrogen are likely those side effects that they're experiencing that they're blaming on estrogen are due to the fact that they are running very high doses of anabolic steroids. It is not because of the estrogen. It is a crappy protocol that is likely to produce some side effects for them. Second, there is abundant research to not only show harm with sustained use of aromatase inhibitors, as mentioned before, they can actually produce a product of aromatization into estrogen. Harmful effects include 
significant decline in bone density. So we're talking about contributing to osteoporosis. I've heard them talk about studies at these conferences where men in their 40s are falling over and breaking their hips because of osteoporosis. That should not happen. Worsening memory. There's been studies that support that men on aromatase inhibitors as part of their testosterone therapy are having poor memory, dementia-like symptoms. And then erectile dysfunction, decreased muscle mass, increased body fat. So a lot of the benefits that they're trying to gain out of adding an aromatase inhibitor, they're actually negating the benefits that they're getting from testosterone. So most of the side effects can, in fact, be managed with proper dosing and frequency of dosing being uh, properly dialed in. There's no one-size-fits-all with testosterone therapy or dosing. That would be a cookie-cutter approach, and what may feel great for one guy can cause side effects in another. Two infrequent dosing, such as biweekly injections that we see a lot of our patients coming in from like primary care, urology, endocrinology, can cause a significant fluctuation in hormones from day one to day 14. So let's be clear on that. She's meaning every 14 days somebody's taking an injection. Correct. I'm a big proponent for more frequent dosing because it often better manages symptoms, mitigates side effects for the patients, and they're left feeling dialed in, and they don't need to add another medication, especially one that causes harm to manage their symptoms. Yeah, so let's talk about the frequency of injections for a second, because it would be a rare side effect to have, let's say, sensitive nipples or puffiness. People want to jump to it being an estrogen problem when, in fact, it's probably more likely an insulin resistance problem and most commonly seen in people that are carrying around too much visceral fat. Correct. And some of this can be even genetic in nature. Now, there's this term, you know, gynecomastia or man boobs that gets thrown around a lot. True gynecomastia is a excessive glandular tissue developed in the pectoral region of the male. This is not the same as some of the symptoms that people describe of what we refer to as pseudogynecomastia, and that is fatty deposits in the pectoral region that men might report on testosterone therapy. True gynecomastia is most prevalent transiently during the newborn period. Okay, hormones are fluctuating, so that would make sense. During puberty, again, hormones are fluctuating. That makes sense. And they may occur, again, in the elderly men. So it may be related to an imbalance of testosterone to estrogen, where testosterone levels are low and estrogen is disproportionately high. This is not the same as the expected increase of estrogen following testosterone with testosterone therapy that we discussed earlier. If bothersome, really the treatment for gynecomastia, if somebody has a true gynecomastia, they should have surgical removal if it is bothering them, not add an AI to their regimen that will not cure the problem for them. The overtime patients with the pseudogynecomastia symptoms would likely see changes to the tissue as their overall body composition improves on testosterone therapy anyway. This also requires dialed-in lifestyle, too, and people just need to understand that throwing a medication is something that would get better likely with time anyway is not the answer. And speaking of seeing a surgeon to get it removed, seeing the right surgeon is important because if you're genetically predisposed to this and you don't see the surgeon that knows how to remove gynecomastia, it will come back because the glands need to be removed. Sure. And I sometimes encourage patients to maybe get you know two opinions when it comes to this just to make sure that they are getting the right surgeon to get the job done. Because the patients that are worried about this, they want it to be treated properly. But I'll be honest, I see a lot of patients 
here. I've been working here for three years. And the patients that I've had that I've done an exam that had true gynecomastia, they all came in with that prior to testosterone therapy. So I don't think that that is indicative of testosterone and estrogen that follows from the testosterone being the problem. Yeah, absolutely. We don't see people get on testosterone and then end up with gynecomastia. Correct. Just a total myth. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about erectile dysfunction. And erectile dysfunction have somehow become tied in as if you have one, you have the other. And I think that is also kind of why testosterone became a little uncomfortable for people to talk about for years. It's like, oh, if I say I have low testosterone, that means I have erectile dysfunction. Or if I say I have erectile dysfunction, I have low testosterone. And they don't always necessarily go hand in hand. So will testosterone fix my erectile dysfunction? Yeah, that's funny, Amy. We have patients come in here and sometimes they're defensive because they know we treat testosterone and they off the bat, I do not have erectile dysfunction. And I'm like, I didn't suggest that you did. But to answer your question, while research does support that men with low testosterone have a higher incidence of erectile dysfunction, or we'll call it ED, psychological factors such as decreased confidence in the bedroom, stress, recent illnesses, and the primary contributor to ED is actually in aging men, it's declining blood flow. So it is a very common problem that comes along with age. Many men don't realize that their existing health conditions and lifestyles such as diabetes, high blood pressure, heavy alcohol intake, tobacco use, all of these things have an impact on erectile blood flow, not just the blood flow elsewhere in the body. Treatment should really be targeted at any factors that might be contributing, which likely means treating more than just the testosterone, although testosterone may be a nice benefit for their erections too. Luckily, treatments for improving blood flow to the penis do exist. A lot of people don't know that. They think, hey, if testosterone doesn't work, if my Viagra doesn't work, I'm out of luck. There's treatments such as wave therapy, P-shot, vacuum erection devices. All of those have been shown to improve erectile blood flow. And while not curative in nature, medications that many of us have heard of, like Viagra or Cialis, which you take by mouth prior to having intercourse, or an injection called Trimix, are a nice adjunct to help keep things rocking and rolling in the bedroom while simultaneously trying to treat the underlying cause. Yeah, we offer all those things at Victory, but the wave therapy in particular is definitely a major breakthrough for erectile dysfunction treatment, really working on trying to treat the underlying cause and breaking up that calcium and plaque that line the blood vessels so blood can better flow and therefore creating nitric oxide, and therefore either eliminating the erectile dysfunction or getting to a point where the Viagra, Cialis, Levitra work the way that they're supposed to. Yeah, for sure. So we can improve existing blood flow with wave therapy. So this is definitely probably my first line of treatment for the aging man because you can be as healthy as can be. Your blood vessels change. And in fact, erectile dysfunction is often an earlier sign of things like impending heart disease. So, uh, you know, even urologists know this is just something that should be monitored. But it also helps create some new and revitalized vasculature in the same breath. And so a lot of young guys benefit from this too. We keep track of all of our patients that do wave therapy and we have an incredible success rate with that. So it is, you know, if somebody is going to treat their blood flow, that is top on my list of things to consider. Yeah, I agree. I, I love the wave therapy. And I think that if somebody is on a PDE5 like Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, they should absolutely consider doing wave therapy because, the erectile dysfunction will 
continue to progress and treating it early is the best way to do it, the best option. It's a lot harder to treat it. The more severe the problem is, you're probably going to have to hit it with more things. And we even have some guys that come in here with really no ED or mild ED, and they want to get a hold of it before it becomes a problem. And shoot, that's even better. They don't have to have ED to get started on wave therapy. And you mentioned how we track the patients. We do something called a shim score where it basically measures how severe or mild, moderate the erectile dysfunction is. And we can see people jump a whole category from severe ED to no ED at all or severe ED to moderate ED. It's amazing how much progress we see the patients make with wave therapy. So I can't say enough positive things about wave therapy. And you hear it advertised as as different things, focus therapy, shock wave therapy, pulse therapy. I just want to make sure that if you're in the market looking for wave therapy, they call it kind of different things. They do, yep. So let's talk about the reference ranges. And we'll hear a patient say, well, I went to my primary care doctor and they said that my testosterone was in normal range, but I don't feel normal. I exhibit all the symptoms of low testosterone. Explain what you would tell a patient when it comes to the, quote, normal reference range. Yeah, I mean, really to start off, I'm going to say that the reference ranges, those numbers, they're a really poor indicator of symptoms, and we should be treating the patient in front of us, not the lab values. But to kind of bring it back to science, according to the 2016 Mayo Clinic consensus recommendations titled Fundamental Concepts Regarding Testosterone Deficiency and Treatment, International Expert Consensus Resolutions, there has never been a study that has revealed a reliable threshold that separates those who experience signs and symptoms of testosterone deficiency from those who do not or those who will respond to treatments. So interpretation of those testosterone values should take into consideration that there are individual variations, genetic variations, and there's no scientific basis also for age-specific recommendations for testosterone therapy. So we are actually encouraged by those consensus recommendations to not restrict treatment based on a number. So we don't. It just means that if we're treating it versus, let's say, the primary care, for instance, we might be using it off-label because the FDA dictates the diagnosis of low testosterone or hypogonadism. So insurance typically is not going to cover it. And when you work in an insurance based world, your primary care doctor is probably not going to treat that. And that's, I'm picking on primary care doctors here, but there's other specialties that will decline to treat a normal level. And the LabCorp reference range for men covers ages 20 to 80. Mm -hmm. So if you're 40 years old and you're sitting at the low end of the reference range, that's maybe, quote, normal for an 80-year-old man, not a 40-year-old man in the prime of their career, life, family. Like, you shouldn't be okay with settling for this, quote, normal range. There's a big difference. Normal isn't optimal. Absolutely. And people don't want necessarily want to feel normal when normal is feeling like garbage. So. Feeling like an 80-year-old? <laughs> yes. Congratulations, so. you're normal. Like, what? It's so frustrating. I don't know how we've gotten this pattern of... This reference range, thinking that if you fall in this range, that you're not symptomatic and you don't need treatment. It's just, it's incorrect. Yeah, and they and they often want them to modify, like, the lifestyle factors, like their diet, their exercise. But as we discussed earlier, 
familiar, these patients are already struggling with those things. And, you know, to be honest, low testosterone is a risk factor for obesity. Obesity is a risk factor for low testosterone. How do we know which one came first, the chicken or the egg? And if these guys are struggling, whenever we treat them, even if they've been turned away time and time again, we see that the weight starts to come off. They're starting to get in the gym. They're exercising. You know, their cholesterol is looking better. Their diabetes, the numbers called the hemoglobin A1C, it's a test that's monitored for blood sugars average to diagnose diabetes. That goes down almost everybody that we treat here, even people that are not in a pre-diabetic or diabetic range. So we're getting better control of their existing health problems by treating the symptoms and not the numbers. Yeah, absolutely. We're at the Winghaven location today recording this podcast, and I was sitting up front, and a patient was so excited because he was on the scale. He's lost 50 pounds already just from managing his hormones and getting back in the gym. And it just, one thing leads to the next. And I mean, that's going to save him from the path that he was on potentially becoming diabetic. It's crazy. I mean, testosterone can make a major impact on your life. Yeah. Low testosterone is a risk factor for many of the diseases that come with aging. So, uh, you know, maybe in one facet, we're actually being preventative for a lot of these problems that guys see as they get older. You know, that's okay. Patients need to understand why we're not using insurance, why we're not following the numbers. But that's based on the lack of evidence that says that we should be following those numbers. Yeah. And just to speak to that insurance comment, Unfortunately, insurance companies aren't exactly excited to pay for things that are proactive to your health. It's more of a reactive sick care model. And I don't like it any more than you do, but unfortunately, that's just the reality that we live in. That was the last question that I had for today. And I think you did a phenomenal job, Lauren. Knocked it out of the park. So many great takeaways. I think we could even do a part three to this because we know there's more FAQs that we could get to. And if you haven't done so yet, please like, share, follow the podcast. It helps tremendously. And I appreciate you taking the time to do so. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you for listening.